0: Good evening and welcome to Socialist Think Tank Political Unmuted Live, I am your host Chantal Lund. I'm not your usual host, so Paul why am I not your usual host?
1: So um, one thing, because you're amazing, uh, so that, that, that's one reason why you're, you're the host, uh, John is uh, with us in spirit, he's on my t-shirt here. But, and Laura's t-shirt as well. But um, John's had a bereavement, as many of you will know. Um, sadly, Barbara, who appears quite a lot on the after show, um, passed away um, and we'll have a tribute to her in the little break a little bit later on. But um, what we lack in John tonight, and I'm sure everyone passes their best wishes to him and his family, uh, but we, what, what we lack in John, we make up for in Chantel. So I'm going to hand it back to you.
0: Thank you, and just sending best wishes to John. Um, So, thinking about this week, um, and yeah, what a week it's been. If we do a little round the room, and if everyone could tell me what your moment of the week has been. Who wants to go first?
1: Shall I do the jingle?
0: Oh, well. All for it. (laughs) Why not?
2: professional
1: (laughs) (laughs) always so
0: who wants to go first Paul what's your moment
1: of the week Uh, my moment of the week just happened a little bit earlier on Um, it was Prince Andrew settling out of court as all rich people seem to be able to do so if you do a massive horrible crime settle out of court and um, it's interesting because the, the statement seems to me to be pretty much an admission of guilt where they were going to go down the lines of oh she's made it up all the time and that photo was a fake and he's also got to make sure that he distances himself from jeffrey epstein now why in the world like that that's like yeah please please distance me from that guy you know like if i was peter mandelson i'd be doing that too but you know like so distance yourself from the massive child sex trafficker that is what you need to do that is just a sensible thing to do in my opinion so that yeah, that's mine
0: that is a good moment of the week and a bit bittersweet but it was never everyone's like oh I'd like to have seen him in court but it was never a criminal court it was a civil court so it was always either going to end in a payout or not um and you know the whole accusations towards um the victim it's gone completely to her charity which is just like you know commendable so Laura what is your moment of the week?
2: Well aside from the t-shirts that i was really excited oh. to get i'm so over the moon with the t-shirts check them out on our website go and buy some they're amazing um i think this week probably the the people's assembly national demo uh we went to the newcastle one and um I, I was really mixed feelings it was like i was over the moon to be out and protesting again and and feeling like i was trying to do something but also i was a bit like oh i really wish there were more people here like i this is so. I, I worry that it's not really cutting through. How important, um because the demo was basically about the cost of living crisis, um, and I think it's going to really start hitting people. So it was good that everybody was out. I would have liked to have seen more out. But then I saw the national pictures, and there was there seemed to be people up and down the country out protesting. So it's really lovely to be out with you know a group of people all like just shouting from the rooftops, just trying our best, and all that solidarity. It really. It it helps your mental health. You're just like, am I the only one that cares about this? And you get there, you're like, no, no, lots and lots of people do. You just don't see it on the news. And it it really gives you that spirit to sort of drive on and and keep fighting. So that was, that was my moment of the week for sure. It was really cool.
0: Oh, love, love. Did we all go to an little people's assembly protest against the Cuts? The one in Liverpool was quite good. And yeah, I know what you're saying about the numbers, but I think they've got actions planned in March and April. So hopefully As we get closer to April, when the um, energy prices are supposed to go up, people will start to go, okay, what action can I take, as you say? And there's nothing better than standing together and just being like, we're not putting up with this. But well done for getting up. Totally. Samantha, how about you? What's your moments of the week, been?
3: Oh, well, on on Saturday, I had the absolute joy of testing positive for COVID. So I've been locked in the house all week, which is loads of fun. Uh, As you can see, I'm not dying. I'm very tired um but not something that would usually stop me just plowing through life. Uh, but Stuart said I should say about the fact that I, I ended up on the BBC New website BBC News website um, last weekend, uh, last week. Um, Bringing uh, some awareness to the issue of abuse in local politics, and you know, uh, let's let's not put a too sharp a point on it. Abuse of politicians is a threat to democracy, and it's really serious. So, um, by all means, hold people to account and be passionate in doing so. But when you're telling somebody that uh, you think they should be shot in the street, you're crossing the line. Um, so yeah, so a lot of stuff happening for me, although like I said, trapped in the house at the moment, not really enjoying it. We'd like to be able to leave, but hopefully um, we'll be able to soon. Sorry to
0: hear you've got COVID, Sam. I'm wishing you a speedy recovery, but well done for, you know, keeping out there and getting on the BBC, series. and that is yeah, a really important issue. It's got to stay classy, Ian, when we're challenging people, keep it classy, no death threats. Um, Stuart, over to you. What's your moments of the week been?
4: I'll be cheeky and I'll I'll, I'll have two because they're, they're much smaller than anything anyone else has been up though. Uh I went out door knocking uh, because I couldn't get up to Newcastle for the People's Assembly uh, demo. So I realised quickly how out of practice I was with that because it's been basically two years since... Anybody's been on the doorstep doing door knocking type campaigning, and uh, that was a that was like being baptized the second time. It was it was an interesting situation, and the second one is that uh, uh, I got onto another future candidates program, uh, the Unite Future Leaders program,
2: Yay.
4: which I understand should be brilliant, but I got on the one in February, which. Uh, was difficult because I'm also meant to go to a regional conference for the Labour Party, those exact dates, so I had to beg to, to move to a later date. So thankfully that's, that's gone through and uh, people keep considering me a candidate for some reason. Oh brilliant, well done Stuart,
0: well done for getting on my course um, and I'm glad you can still go along with so. it so um if, if i had a moment of the week it would probably even though it was last week it's one of those where were you when you got this notification and i was at a bbc event <laughs> looking at my phone like yay and um, cressida dick has resigned this is last week's news Woo! made up and um, but obviously there's been a lot of debate over the weekend um as someone who used to be a police officer, I've had loads of reporters remembering that I was someone who used to speak about racism and sexism and calling me again um, to talk about the same thing again. Um, but it sparked this a, a massive debate about the toxicity in the police force. Um, we've had, obviously, Sadiq Khan has said he had no faith in her, so she has to resign, but then Priti Patel feels that he wasn't being very professional and was really upset. Today, I've seen a... Um, article from the assistant commissioner who is Baz Javid who is actually Savage Javid's brother Um, and he's basically responded to two black officers whistleblowing again about racism in the Met force again by saying yes some officers are racist but the whole force isn't racist and so I'm hoping we can have a little chat about this because uh, Baz is actually the top runner to replace Cressida um, and obviously we can see a little potential conflict of interest there with them being the brother of and um, you know, keeping in the family and all that. So what do we think? What do we think of Cressida's resignation and do we think that by her resigning anything is going to change significantly in the force? Laura, what do you think? <laughs>
2: I mean, I could just answer that in one word: no. <laughs> um, I think um, Cressida Dick is a symptom of a problem that has been going on for years and years and years. You know, it is the system is very nepotistic in its nature. It's no, it's no surprise that Cressida Dick's family went to Oxford and they all know the right people and they all get into positions of power. Um, and you know, she she was did a few interviews leading up to our resignation and shortly after saying that she was deeply saddened and she regretted it. Um, but that she thought she had led a real transformation of the Met and stuff. And it's all, it just all, um, maybe I'm getting cynical in my old age, but it all just seems like the same old thing. And I do believe that once Cressida is gone, whoever comes next will put on a shiny new suit and go, look at me. I'm completely different. And actually, nothing really will change because the establishment will always look after itself and it continues to do so. Um, for me, Cressida Dick should never have even been given that job role anyway, considering the 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 levels of distrust that were there in her anyway beforehand because of things like, you know, the Charles, uh, Jean-Charles de Mendes, I can never say a second I want to say Mendes, but that she's an actress, so, but you know who I mean. <laughs> you know, that whole, thank you, Paul, that whole situation was just unforgivable. It really was unforgivable. And, and she was in charge at, of the investigation at that time. And I just think... How how do you rise through the ranks when you have failure on top of failure on top of failure and people keep forgiving you for it? Why now? Why now has she chosen to resign? It It's not because Sajid Javid has said anything, I don't think. I don't think that would be enough to push her out. Something's happening behind the scenes. They've got the next one lined up and I just feel like the whole the whole nature of our power structures in this country and in let's be honest most of the western world is nepotistic, is all about power, is about who owns who, who has the money, who has the information and it's nothing to do with rising through the ranks because you owe, you are owed that and you've worked hard for it and you care. It really seems to me that it's very clear now that that goes through it permeates every single faction of our society, whether that's police or government or so many other positions of power. It doesn't seem to me like there's going to be a great deal of difference and there needs to be and I think this goes back to what we were saying about um solidarity and people coming together the only way we make these people change is by coming out in force against them you know we saw what happened after the death of Sarah Everard and and how how vile that got with the the treatment of the people at those vigils and and the but the strength that came from that the strength of feeling that came up and down the country to say no this is not okay and I, and i i believe that if if people hadn't have come out in force against that that probably could have been just you know swept under the carpet and forgotten about so we really need to be coming out in force against these things that we we think are a problem and they keep saying aren't a problem you know they police forces aren't homophobic, they're not racist. they're not misogynists. And it's like, well, I have a lot of proof here to suggest otherwise, so you need to listen. Um, And things like this involve people power, trade unions. It is essentially just people coming together and going, no, this is not okay. And so, no, I think Cressida Dick's resignation is probably not something she wanted to do, something she felt she had to or was forced into doing. And I don't think that that suddenly gives us a new lease of life for policing in this country. I don't think it's going to be the fixing of everything. I think it is just going to be the next one. And we'll, (laughs) more of the same. Yeah.
0: Yeah, um, unfortunately, I can't disagree with you, Laura. It's a bit like when you said Boris Johnson was going to resign, and I was like, well, who's going to replace him? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's dead interesting because you're saying, you know, she's had failure after failure after failure, but she's still been promoted. Again, a direct comparison to Boris Johnson, who's been sacked from every job he's had, yet is the prime minister of the country. But if we look at, like, these links, obviously, you know, we've got a politician's brother being lined up for the top job. And the police are supposed to be politically neutral um, and obviously all of this has come about because they kind of opened an investigation to take the legs of sue gray's reports and take all the bad bits out because it would be you know it was compromised the investigation what do we think do we think that there is that separation between politics and policing or are they closer than ever um, paul
1: um I... I don't think there is a separation. There's there's a historical link between politics and policing and, and what the purpose of policing is. And, um, you know, we, we know the historical um, reason for the police is not to help the people. It was to help the people who owned... Well, actually, a lot of people think it started with the people who owned other people, who owned slaves. And, and this is not really... this. Lovely benevolent force that we like to see in the world. People would see the police as being this kind of this protector. Whereas in reality, they seem to be protecting themselves quite a lot. What interests me is that the the thing that seems to have brought Cressida Dick down, despite all those things that both you and Laura have mentioned, Chantel, um, it seems to be the fact that they've sort of turned a blind eye to these down and street parties And there is something politically tangible in there. So Sadiq Khan went to speak to her. And there's something like, you know, obviously there's public opinion there as well, where people are very annoyed with what um, Boris Johnson did during the COVID pandemic, when they had the Downing Street parties, etc. Something really, for me, it's, it's far less relevant than the damage they've caused to the people of the country. But this seems to be something that they think has got political cut through. And therefore, Cressida Dick has had to resign. As people have mentioned in the comments, though, she's resigned on this huge package of uh, a massive golden goodbye and and um, and a huge pension. I, I believe it's £500,000 lump sum and £150,000 a year that she's going to get. And, you know, more money than any of us could ever hope for. We wouldn't have to ever work again for that kind of money, would we? Or, or even close to it. So, yeah... It's absolutely linked to politics. The decisions made, the appointments. Also, does anyone else get this weird feeling that like TV conditions us to think that there are only a small number of people in the world? And therefore, they don't think it's weird that the health secretary's brother is going to lead the police or potentially going to lead the police. Like, that's so, like, astronomically long odds to have these people getting into positions of power, but it happens time and again with lords and loads of prime ministers haven't gone to Eton. That's really, mm. really weird, and I don't think people have a clue how big the country is. It's like when when people say, "Oh, we're full. We're a massive country. There's, there's loads and loads of land. We're like ninety percent um, non-urban, you know, in the country." So it's I don't think people understand the scale of things, and I don't think people really understand that, like you know, it is particularly weird to have so many prominent people in one family.
0: Definitely, definitely. Just coming, looking at some of the comments, coming in like, why do we accept this from people in positions of power? But um, why do we? Um, Do you think, Samantha, do you think this might be the straw that broke the camel's back? Do you think this, just the level? I mean, there's always been corruption, but the level of just really kind of unfiltered, it's so visible for everyone to see, as has been touched upon. And the police are in kind of PR damage limitation. They've even contacted me this week. You always know they're having a bad week when they contact me to do an AIM diversity seminar or whatever. So I'm like, oh, you're having a bad week of PR. But do you think they're going to be able to recover from this? Do you think we'll forget as the public?
3: I think it's done an interesting thing, which is it's made the Met police everybody's business. Where I think historically, um, like across the country, the Met police it's been like, oh, yeah, that happened. Well, it would, it's the Met, and it's a joke, it's a running joke. Uh, wherever you're talking about police, you know, oh, they got away with it because it was the Met. Um, and I think scandals like what happened at Sarah Everard's vigil, uh, really shook everybody in the country um and has made people realize that actually as long as we accept those standards of behavior in the met that that allows things elsewhere um and obviously that the, the horrendous things that they did to to, to henry um and nicole snob nicole's mom, and nobody would want that for their family um and the fact that it could happen the fact that you would have a whatsapp group full of of people and that yeah maybe a couple of people would be held responsible but i'd want every single person in that whatsapp group to be held responsible and i wouldn't want any of them um helping my family in any way shape or form in the future because that's horrendous um so i think that's an interesting point and i hope that that um light continues to be shone on the Met Police. Uh, it, is, it is an interesting one in terms of politics, the fact that the Met Police Commissioner is appointed um, <laughs> by the, the Home Secretary, right? So, um, yeah. And, and so right now we've got the government being invested, investigated by the Met Police for their parties at, at number 10 and the person who's going to be effectively in charge of that um, investigation is somebody who was going to be appointed by the government. Uh, so we're doing really good in terms of the corruption stakes at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. When you look at it, it's like, OK, you know, you're a civil servant. Who's your boss? Priti Patel. And who's this report Old her boss? So do we think this report's going to be transparent and going to, like, you know, point the finger at anyone? Not likely. Not likely. Um, we're going to come to you, and um, finally, do you think? I mean, obviously, I work for this uh, police force, and I have my own opinions of uh, that police force. But do you think this is something that is specific to the Met, or do you think it's just nationwide change that we need to kind of? Obviously, the Met are the ones that are spotlighted because the London and the biggest force. But do you think it's a bigger issue? Uh,
4: I think it is a bigger issue. Uh, I think in the public conscience, the the Met is kind of seen as this almost like a gold standard. Everybody looks to London as like this example of what we should be doing. And that they get the best of everything and everywhere else gets a little bit less. And this has kind of shone the light on the fact that this isn't great. This is pretty awful at times. Uh, there's so much that needs to change. And it, I think it's got it into people's minds that they're, they're looking at their own police forces, the kind of standards that they're seeing at, at home. I mean, certainly, you know 10-15 years ago you wouldn't bump into people who would know who were you know in charge of the Met it wouldn't it just wouldn't be something that the public thought about now they're telling jokes down the pub about the Met you know and it's leadership it's it's something very different and I don't think it's going to disappear from the public conscience anytime soon
0: definitely definitely Um, I did wonder because like the police the in and out of Vogue so often you know you only one like cat in a tree or something away from them being heroes again and they do do a hard job you know I used to do the job myself but since BLM they've not got off the hook and, and for me as an activist as a BLM activist as a former police officer this is amazing but I was always waiting for you know we've had this big BBC show The Responder while it explores police corruption it's very much endearing and kind of endears people to the police and I force. is that going to change public opinion but I've been so surprised the public have just not change course for two years. It's like the public are persistently and consistently saying we want change, we want a better police force. And even you know the brought also have a report saying that the Met we we're, were not institutionally racist. Christine's a dick is saying it. And as you say, if you go down to the pub Stuart, it people are just they're not we can like it's like no like we we have eyes and we, we can see what's happening but the question is, are they gonna take it on board? Um, and for me, it will always be a cultural issue. Like Samantha, you touched upon the fact that these WhatsApp groups, one or two officers um, will be disciplined, but with Beaver Henry and Nicole Smallman, that picture had done the rounds with loads of officer WhatsApp groups. And for me, the significant bit was it was a new officer, a rookie who was training, who he showed it to her and she went, this is awful, what's going on here? and so when I brought like when I reported the police in my force I was a rookie and a new officer and what you find is you'll get these new officers who come in from the outside and they've still got that connection it's a bit like a cult in the police so you lose it but they've still got that connection to the outside world and they've still got those standards and they come in and they're like what is they like what is this so they're the ones the most likely to put their hands up and say this is wrong this shouldn't be happening but because of the ranking systems of the police and you know it's about how many lines and dots you've got on your on your badge on your shoulders they're the least likely to be taken seriously so i don't like what do you think a restructure is help i don't know just put it out to the group what do we think a restructure
1: I, d- I don't i don't know whether a restructure is like it needs to be kind of dug up from the roots and in, and in, in something else you know, like there there are there are some good ideas out there and, and the problem is we're so institutionalized towards it that when you suggest them, you're considered to be like this crazy radical thinker that's the just an absolute idiot, you know, so there's people who've been talking about defunding the police whereas instead of funding the police so much you fund mental health services because the police themselves say that they're spending more time on people's mental health than they are on actually solving crimes or 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 stopping crime and um but that sensible idea of placing funding elsewhere is often met with absolute shock and horror and like oh it's bad enough as it is and you know we all see in our communities that crimes tend to be um they tend to go relatively um unpunished and no one seems to um actually find anything out about them you know, so why is it so radical to suggest that we need something quite different from what we have?
0: Mm. It's it's interesting as well, because in some ways, America is actually ahead of us. So off the back of BLM, a lot of American forces put funding into community-led, non-armed initiatives that responded to... Because as you say, most policing, like 90% of policing is not crime, it's civil matters, it's, it's things that you don't need any kind of kit to use most officers don't use the kit and don't need any kinds of heavy hands of response so the trials in america non-armed civilian units basically you know public services that we used to have in the UK responding to incidents rather than the police with the police just in the background in a station as a backup if you needed them. And it worked. And this is the thing we need to understand that the police are responding, as you say, to issues that used to be responded to by children's services, social services, you know, doctors, nurses, a whole team of support systems, that social safety net. But now, you know, through 10 years, 11 years of Tory cuts, we haven't got those services, so we're to the police who will always arrest face and will always, you know, be quite, you know, heavy handed first. So maybe it is just like refunds our services.
3: But
0: mm. well, there's some brilliant comments coming in. Um, I love that someone's daughter did a little comment, which I found funny. But people are basically saying, you know, it's quite extreme the policing that we've got, and we do need to change. And maybe this is the point of change, it's got to get quite grim before we change. Um, and speaking of change. We, As you mentioned earlier, Laura, we've all been on the streets on Saturday, demands and change, and um, I have a hot water bottle on my knee, <laughs> and this is this is because the cost of gas and electricity is going up, and I'm in the back room, and I don't want to throw the heating on, so I'm just like looking at these um, money-saving ways to not put the heating on. I was looking at this article, and I don't even know what paper it was in, but it was like ways to save money when the price of gas and electricity has gone up. Most of the savings they were putting on there would save you like £4 a year. And I'm like, <laughs> gas and electricity is going up by like £600 a year and you're trying to save me £4 a year. Um, so the cost of living prices is just at peak. You know, we've got increasing national insurance, we've got cuts to services, gas and electricity have gone up by 45%, It well, will be by April in the UK, while in places like France are only going up by 4%. And on Saturday, the People's Assembly had everyone on the street fantastic organization we had everyone on the street in most cities in england demanding change and really kind of making our voices heard um so we'll do another round the room i'm going to start with you paul because you're to my left did you go to a protest and how do you think we're gonna do you think we can halt this gas and electricity bill that's coming for us in april
1: um I think the damage is already done, really. Um, so yeah, I did go to a protest. I was at Newcastle with Laura. Um, Ian Lavery was there speaking, so we had a nice chat with him and got a video for Socialist Think Tank. Uh, he made a powerful speech, as as he always does. Um, what I I think the I think the protests are, are relatively limited because I think while people are angry, people are also oppressed by what's going on. So, the idea of travelling to Newcastle when you've got no money, the people who this is really affecting, like me, me and Laura were talking about this and about, you know, we're thinking, have me, are we going to have enough money? And both of us have decent jobs. Um, and for us, it's kind of like, oh, we're going to have to, you know, maybe have, have a few, like fewer luxuries or whatever. But for some people, it will be the choice between, you know, having food or. Or having a warm house or maybe even not even be able to choose either of those things. So the idea of us all going to a place together and traveling and spending money on public transport, which is also like really, really poor in the Northeast um, and, and in many places around the country, only really London that it isn't poor. Um, you know, we've uh, will people be able to turn up there and think, yeah, I'm happy to spend my money on turning up to this place even though I don't have one and I think we really are limited by uh, by that. Also the things haven't really hit yet so there's things coming like the national insurance and, and for me national insurance rise just shows how little respect and how little economic understanding they have. Either they fully understand economics and know the damage they're doing or they're economically illiterate and I'll explain why. Um, When they decided to raise national insurance in order to pay back, I don't know, maybe it was the tax cut to the banks that they gave. Maybe that's what it was to pay back. They said it was some sort of COVID thing. But they've raised national insurance. They're saying it's for social care. um, But we've already paid extra for social care on our council tax and all sorts of different things. And really, tax doesn't really pay for things in that way anyway. You know, it's, it's, it's spend and tax, not tax and spend but we'll talk about that another time. But with national insurance, if they're going to take money away from ordinary people who pay national insurance, that will mean less money to spend in communities. That will mean less money to spend in local shops and local pubs and all those things. And that's damaging to the economy because you're taking money out of people's hands. What they're also doing is they are raising national insurance for employers. Employers are going to have to pay more and they're not getting budgets increased. So let's say, for example, in a school, if you have a certain number of members of staff, maybe 100 and the national insurance for them all goes up, suddenly they're thinking we can't afford all these staff and that staff number becomes 99 and you make that person redundant um, and, and then one, one person is made redundant. That means 1% of people, fewer few people with a job, which causes more problems, less money to spend, more money to have to find for people um, you know, on, on universal credit or whatever, even though that's insufficient. So this just spirals out of control. It causes huge, huge problems. And the idea that at the same time as all this cost of living crisis, where we're seeing France's, France's bills capped at 4%, and ours going up by like 54% because we haven't nationalised energy, and they have, and they own our energy as well, and all our energy supplies are kept offshore as well, and they're looking after their countries in Germany and in Scandinavia and so on, it just shows you that either they don't care about us whatsoever, or they're incredibly economically illiterate. And what worries me more is that I'm making this point and I'm not hearing this point being made very often, very far and wide. It's not being made in the media. It's not being made by mainstream political parties. That is a huge, huge worry to me.
0: Definitely, definitely. And while you were talking, absolutely amazing points, Paul. We've obviously, some of our listeners are saying about joining a union, demand a pay rise. Um, But you've mentioned, obviously, socialist alternatives like own and own the utilities own public transport that would solve a lot of the problems that we're in what do we think guys i'll just throw it out of the group um obviously at times like this i love to think back to jc and all the amazing things he was going to do what do we think the socialist policies would result in like this cost of living crisis being less you know sharp and less in um, felt across the nation particularly with vulnerable groups?
2: Once a all right, Stuart's going to go, month. I'm going to let you go. <laughs> Never but then,
4: uh, <laughs> he's too polite. <laughs> right. There's one thing I know that we wouldn't have to do. We wouldn't have to struggle and chew on, right, to make sure that kids get fed, right? One socialist policy that we could establish, and it would cost next to now, It's just making sure that all kids had access to food. Cool stuff. It's dead simple. Kids go to school. We know how to get the food in them. The food isn't hugely expensive we can guarantee those kids males, full stop. That's not an issue. And yet there's no political will to deal with. And that's, you know, frankly, disgusting. And I in the northeast, uh, like a quarter of the kids who, are, are, you know, and the families turning up at food banks, those families aren't eligible for the, the, like the free school males. They're in that middle ground where they're not getting any, uh, like, social security support. And they're still you know, in absolute poverty, in reality. They're, they're, they're struggling, and there's an that's going to lift them up, unless it's through wealth, welfare, through social security, through guaranteed means to access to food, to energy. And there's no will to do it. And I think a, a socialist government would have the will. It would be very easy to put into place quick, near instant, I would think. Definitely,
0: definitely. And like you say, it's like about need space, isn't it? It's about like recognising people's needs and going from there. Something that really baffles me with especially the council, the local council cuts the funding is quite often the people who have the highest levels of deprivation, like Liverpool, we've got some of the highest national levels of deprivation, but we also have the highest levels of cuts to our funding. Whereas, you know, somewhere like Cambridge. Doesn't get the report like they get less cuts, even though people are more affluent there. I don't know, is it the same in Newcastle? Do you get a higher proportion of cuts? Um, you, like, it baffles me, but it doesn't seem to make sense. It's not fair, and it doesn't seem to be looking at the most vulnerable. What do you think, Samantha?
3: well um i would like to say the good news is we're looking at a fair funding review in terms of local authorities but because the conservative government is like an institutional version of that game corrupt a wish where you you say something that sounds good and then someone ruins it of course fair funding review doesn't actually mean that local authorities are going to get more money Um, they're just going to set some new arbitrary rules as to how things are going to be funded. So yes, you're totally right. Um, the the North East has, has suffered terribly from the uh, local authority cuts and, and we're very... Um, much impeded in terms of raising funds through council tax because um, something like 95% of our properties in County Durham are band A so when you've got that much band A properties you can't redistribute the tax base um, and raise money in the same way as you can in Surrey for example which is usually the example that people bring up um, so yeah it is it is a real worry um, and we know that state-owned utilities can uh, lessen the burden on the people because that is exactly how france is getting through this so it's another one of these examples where people talk about state-owned transportation systems as if they pie in the sky but our commercial transportation systems in the uk are run by um german and french state-owned businesses and they have their own lovely state-owned transportation systems in their own country so we've got this it's it's another sort of post fact era post truth era thing where people will confidently say it's impossible to have state-owned utilities and it's impossible to have state-owned public transport when these things are very easily happening in other countries so we just need people
0: to wake up (laughs) <laughs> Wake up people. <laughs> definitely, definitely, Samantha. And it's like you called, you know, you utopian and a daydreamer for believing the kids in the sixth wealthiest country in the world should have full bellies at night. Like, how is that the utopian dream? It's like it it baffles me. Like to me, I'm just like, that whole sixth wealthiest country means nothing if one child in this country is going to bed hungry. Like it doesn't mean a thing. It means absolutely nothing. Um so Laura, I'm giving you the hard question, obviously oh, Paul touched upon the fact that not everyone can access these protests and you've said, you know, obviously we want numbers to be higher and we want more people to be engaged. Um, how do you think we're gonna engage them? How are we gonna make sure, you know, service users and the people who feel these cuts and, you know, who are gonna to go to bed cold and hungry, the elderly, how can we bring them along in this movement? Cause it's gonna be a big movement potentially all year or longer
2: it's it's gonna be longer chantelle it's gonna it is a big job to do because we've been socialized now to just accept what the media tells us and as we know the media do not tell us the whole truth or at the minute even part of it um and so when people and i understand why politicians you know do the things like oh hating and eating and you know all those catchy things that like you try and reach out to your audience and go, this is dead catchy, they'll listen. But actually, it it takes away from the message when you just use rhyming words and three, you know, three-word sentences to try and get people to listen. Because essentially, what's happening at the minute, and and this really feeds into probably the 99% of the topics we talk about on this show is that it is nothing to do with individual factions of society trying to function in a decent way or not being able to function properly. It is the top 1% who are leading all these charges, is the top 1% who have everything to do with selling off the NHS, with raising our gas and electricity prices, with policing our streets. All of that is dictated by a very small few people who all know each other and they all pat each other's backs and go, great job, without having any clue about what real people have to live like, about what real normal people's day-to-day lives are like. And it's getting, it's always been scary, but it is has felt for too long that the poorest of the poor in this country don't matter it doesn't they haven't got a voice no one cares keep them quiet they they're not going to do anything they've got no power behind them because they've got no money and that seems to have been factual for quite a long time because what power do they have they're far too busy trying to keep their kids alive trying to get out to their fourth job of the week just to try and make any sort of money this price hike in april It's gonna be quickly followed by another one in October. And we are gonna start seeing deaths and we are gonna start seeing suicides and mental health illness is going to absolutely rocket like it has all through COVID when rich people have continued to make money and the rest of us have suffered. But not only that, the middle income earners, who people who you kind of got, you know, you should have enough money to survive. You should have enough money to live quite a comfortable life these cuts are now going to start hitting them. And when we start going up that chain that shouldn't exist, more and more people are going to be started to be listened to, they're going to have to be because we're moving towards people with a bit of sway, people with a bit of um, a voice in society. Now that's not to say that that's right. Of course it's not. We all know on this show that, you know, everybody matters hundred percent, but actually this government and, And we can't say that the the price increases of electricity and gas and power and, and petrol and all that isn't directly as a result of decisions this government have made because they are they are the ones who are going to have to reap what they sow shortly because eventually this is going to reach a point where it is unsustainable people are dying people are going to reach out and look for help and that help is going to come in the form of activists trades unionists people who've been trying to fight this fight for a long time and once we get these teams together there's going to be far too many of us it's about now lifting that veil and getting people to see that and Things like socialist think tank and all the independent media out there need to keep plugging away. Our audiences might be small, but they do have, they do have a reach, you know, of people who can make a difference. So that's where we start. We and then we get out on the streets, we talk to people, we bring it up in everyday conversation at work, no matter how uncomfortable that might feel. You know, you get the eye roll when you talk about politics, even if you work for a trade union, trust me, I know. But you just need to keep going. And don't just fight with people. Don't just say you're wrong. Try and find out why they have those beliefs and go, "Oh, actually, what have you thought about this? Because telling someone they're wrong is never going to be conducive to a, a decent conversation that's going to lead us to any sort of solution. But we need to get the people together on this and get them to realise that actually this is not our doing. This is being done to us and we can fix it. But it is, it's going to be a big job because we've been doing this for hundreds of years. The, you know, the little man of, of, has been fighting for hundreds of years, and we're going to keep keep
0: going. I want to give you a round of applause, Laura. That was <laughs> a bit amazing. You should have shut Absolutely. me up long before now. <laughs> Honestly, just so many points to that. You know, voices that have more wealth than others and kind of just engage and wider audiences, as you say. But for me, it's the everyday activism. Like, you know, it's, the, it's not, activism isn't always big megaphones sometimes you can be just as powerful and reach just as many people by having a conversation with the person next to you as you say at the water cooler Um as you were speaking loads of comments came in but unity news put a comment in that a thought sort of captures what it actually is he says it's not you know heating or eating it's living or dying and that is literally where we're at some people are going to live, some people are going to die, some people are going to make it through winter, some people will starve to death. And we've been seeing this happening an an increasing rates, again and again and again, but as was um, touched upon, there's going to be even more numbers. Um, and speaking of potential mass deaths, um, the Ukraine and Russia are like, everyone's scared. Tomorrow apparently is the day that everyone thinks Russia's going to go in, they've been at the border, there's there's more soldiers there, but, you know, the um, politicians from Russia are like, you know, oh, there's double the soldiers, we don't know why, being really big. I don't know if anyone saw that meeting with Vladimir Putin and one of his advisors on what can only be described as the world's biggest table. The table's huge. It was like, he takes COVID seriously. There was literally a 25-metre swimming pool between them. I mean, <laughs> it's a serious issue, but I couldn't get over this table. I was just like, oh, my goodness. And they've sent, you know, Germany in to negotiate and to talk them down but Germany get the gas from Russia and would we'll freeze without Russia's gas so it all feels a bit like what's happening Paul sorry you're next him what is happening
1: um okay so this is a long-running thing this is uh this is to do with all sorts of things if you if you go back to the cold war uh, when NATO was set up to try and um, combat the the what they saw as the threat of communism and socialism, um, not that Russia and the USSR ended up being particularly socialist or communist. It seemed to me to be the uh, they were doing exactly the same as capitalism. They were just um, they just made sure everyone was poor and, you know, it wasn't it wasn't really a great version of uh, of socialism as far as I can see, but. When the when the Berlin Wall came down, they promised that they wouldn't um, they wouldn't expand NATO anywhere into uh, into the borders of Russia and to the satellite states of Russia, and that was a promise that was kept for I think I believe it was around two years, um, and then they changed tack and said, well, actually, anyone who wants to join NATO should be able to join NATO, and more and more uh, more and more of the former Soviet bloc countries um, join NATO and Russia. Um, Feel threatened by that, whether or not that they're justified in feeling threatened by, it, they do feel threatened by that, and there is talk of um, of Ukraine now joining NATO. There has been for quite some time. Um, it's been interesting today because uh, because yesterday, um, Nate, uh, one of the one of the Ukrainian ministers started talking about not perhaps joining NATO anymore, and now I'm hearing reports that Russian troops are. Uh, are moving away from the borders. So what Russia are certainly the the people of Russia and certainly Putin is is saying uh, are that there's a there's a potentially a threat of NATO right on their doorstep. Um, and they've also got this huge pipeline as well uh, that's going to pipe gas into Europe that's going to avoid Ukraine. So it's kind of like Ukraine are a little bit worried that they're going to be cut out of the whole situation it's really really complex i've not really criticized russia there i think russia is an awful awful state like russia if you if you look at the atrocities of russia the way they treat gay people the way they've invaded crimea and annexed it um you know they they have done some absolutely terrible things so in no way shape or form am i defending russia but very few people are putting the point of view forward that that kind of it's it's a two-way thing here where it seems to be okay for um nato to posture on the outskirts of russia but russia when they posture on the outskirts of the ukraine that's a big problem and you know we could maybe do with a lot of de-escalation here um and a lot more cooperation between countries rather than being adversarial um that said we have a lot of maniacs in charge of different countries which is really really worrying and and these kind of strong man leaders that um that boris johnson aspires to be that putin is um i think maybe we need to be looking at a big model of, of much better leadership and much more sensible leadership um and maybe like have some nice women in charge rather than rather than strong men because they seem to be messing up quite uh quite massively at the moment. So yeah, there's there's a lot to think about and it is incredibly complex.
0: Definitely. I'm just seeing Neil Taddy's comment come in and I think it's like relevant. That's the word of the night, the escalation. Um, and as you've alluded to, you know, we need we need female with a level head going in there. We need mum kind of settling things down, not dad, riling the kids up, which is an awful analogy, but we're going to go with it. And um, I just kind of, and speaking of children, this was like circulating on social media. And I always think it in times of war, when war's brewing and, you know, when all our leaders who've got nothing to do want to cause or, you know, escalate one. And it's this question, if you know, years ago, if you were going to war or if you were fighting, you'd have your leader on a horse in front of you. They'd be the first in. The kids would be next to them, fighting with them. Now, they would be the last people you'd see on a battlefield and they would never send their children into war. And so, like... There's this question of, what if it was their children? Do you think they'd be so fast to be starting all of this conflict or not to be looking at alternatives? And I'm going to throw it out to the group as the last question on the um, Ukraine-Russia conflict. So whoever wants to answer that, can answer it or jump in. Do we, this, this whole
2: thing, not to sound like a broken record, this whole thing does feed into that whole idea of, of, of power before principle of power first and I think I don't think it comes down to a question of oh if their children had to fight would they do it because actually I think these people once you get to a certain level in in the way our governments and our leaders are are sort of set up they'd never even consider that that was even an option because they're too good for that sort of thing so we'll just we'll the collateral damage in to do it for us and I think again there's a there's a whole conversation around that as well people who go to war to fight you know of course we all you know love the fact that we have soldiers who are dead brave and all of that you know I, I would hope that that all goes without saying but at the same time I really want to just give them a shake and go you know your leaders who are sending you into these battles don't care about you and you are there to do a job to get them more power and more money. Now there's a complex situation, especially here between Russia and Ukraine. You know, it was since 91 when Ukraine became independent from Russia and then the Berlin Wall came down and there was this whole big thing and it's all a power grab. Um, But the expansion of NATO has been a big issue because I think Putin's sort of saying that's a broken promise to him. You know, he, he was told that they wouldn't come in and get Ukraine. And and then we're trying to protect UK, Ukraine and the Russians are trying to go. I kind of want to just talk to the people from the Ukraine and go, what do you want? Like, what do you want to do? Because you've got all these people coming in fighting for you. If only life was that simple. But unfortunately, it's It's all dependent on what the leaders do. And no, I don't think they would even consider putting themselves in the position of the people who have to fight for the, for this because our government don't. They don't know what it's like to have six kids in a freezing cold house, not being able to feed them. And that's not like, we're moving back to medieval times and they still don't care. <laughs> so why would they care about sending soldiers off to war? Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's complicated and sad. And, and the, the, the answer would be so simple, it'd be so easy. Just give a shit about other people. There you go. Done. <laughs>
0: definitely, definitely, and it is. It's like those disposable po- populations. It's a bit like COVID. There were disposable populations who can die, who can fight for us, and it's just there's, there's no. There is. It, there's a world of difference between us and them. And so, like you say, they wouldn't think of they could ever go to war because why would that ever happen? Um. But moving swiftly on to our last topic before I leave you, we're going to talk about the UCU, who are just. An OG absolute legendary um union in Liverpool. They went on strike, they picketed, they did awesome actions, which saved 47 jobs. Um, but they're back on strike today, I believe doing around 10 days of action because of proposed cuts to the pension. I might be wrong though. Who knows the most about the UCU strikes? Who wants to go fish? Stuart, I'm gonna ask you.
4: <laughs> I do. I'm by no means an expert, but uh They've got solid reason for being out. The the cuts, uh, basically, the people's pensions and uh, their, the, you know, pay packets at the end of the day is massive. It's, you know, it's like 30%, which is life-changing, ultimately. You've built your, your life. You've practically you've designed your future around a set amount of money, about you knowing what you've got coming in, and then your boss says, nah, I'm going to change that. You have every right to be out there fighting not just for what they deserve with regards to getting back what they had but probably some markers honestly I think uh, they're probably not paid enough in the first place certainly we don't uh, give teachers and uh, that, that, the whole industry is such probably the, the value it needs certainly the management of education has become something entirely separate to uh, the actual mainstay staff, yeah, totally back them.
0: Definitely, they 100% back them. And I think for me, like, you know, I'm like a mature student doing Masters and all that. But obviously, we all know the teachers are like, you know, they don't get the pay they deserve. But I always had this idea that like university lecturers were really well off and were like really on decent wages. And, you know, it was a really secure job. I think friends might have given me that idea because Ross got ten, Yeah. But then when I went to uni, like, and you're seeing precarious contracts, you know, zero hours contracts, people going to food banks, lecturers living in vans. And this really like this, you know, you're right at the top of your level of academic achievement, but you still can't get a secure job because of the way these systems are set up in the market marketization of universities. And Especially just watching the UCU and seeing like our UCU and Liverpool are just amazing. I know I know loads of others are have seen Chester as well, but just seeing them having to come out again and again and again. It's just like one kick in the teeth after another. And it's like, do you hate your staff? Like I really feel like saying universities, do you hate your staff? Can you not can you not guarantee them a job? Can you not just give them a pension that they deserve or, you know, preserve the mental health by getting enough staff in? What do you think Samantha do you, Is it like a war on academics or is this just peak capitalism?
3: It's interesting, isn't it? Um, uh, uh, Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, is it, is it peak capitalism? I think you're right. It's shocking the level of, of uh, poor pay and poor um, stability in the academic. The fact, the fact that a lot of academics will have to have second jobs to keep themselves going. And it's, through passion that they do it um one thing that did warm my heart was the uh, the thing that I put on the Durham University student Union page where they're offering uh, striking uh, lecturers free coffee <laughs> in the Student union uh, that which is nice I think we often forget that student union is a union um because it's kind of one of those can't see the wood for the trees and it's nice that Durham, Students Union um, are keen to rediscover the the second part of their name and support um, because this is the other thing that the media like to do in these situations is play the students off against the teachers um, and thankfully I hope that a lot of students appreciate the fact that um, without strong unions supporting their teachers their university experience would be much poorer um, and these are people who do what they do because of a passion and a vocation um, and if they only put in the amount of effort that they get paid for then
0: they would have a much much uh, diminished university experience. Definitely and um, student support has been like really consistent throughout all the strikes that they've been doing and it's brilliant to as the students on the radio and I now again refer to Liverpool ones the student support in Liverpool has been absolutely incredible it's like everyone's up against the same monster though um, the same obviously marketisation and the hierarchy of universities monster and um, someone did just comment Paul Smith just saying it you know it's not just a UK problem it's happening all over the world it is and there were other comments saying that higher education should be free I am a million percent behind you with my life. I don't even know what my student debt is. I'm never going to look at it. Um, but yeah, it, it should be free. It's ridiculous that we have to pay. I and mean, it's all of this competition that is driving, you know, just reducing the value of staff and driving costs up. In. And so students and staff are fighting the same monster. But we're at 10 o'clock. I'll see if anyone wants to add any comments. But that's all from me. And I'm, I'm so made up that I've reach like my perfect time. Bang on 10 o'clock. <laughs>
2: Well
1: yeah <laughs> That was awesome. Well done. Yeah. Just to, just to like do a little comment on that. It's average average vice chancellor pays over 250,000 pounds and you've got the you know the marketization and, and the expectations that are put on the staff because people are paying for a service rather than education being a right. I think that's really really important. It just creates these conditions like you've got people who are have you have to have a PhD, but you're going to get paid less than twenty thousand pound for your job. But you need a PhD to do it. Like, there's something wrong there, especially when like that the the vice chancellor will be getting more than ten times that pay. In some cases, over five hundred thousand pounds. In I think it's in six universities around the country. So, yeah, Cap- peak capital. I'm gonna, yeah, i I want to take us over ten o'clock. Sorry, <laughs> I would take full
2: no. responsibility. It's my fault. But it's it's not just the. the the marketization of it. It's actually the the commodification of education now. And people can make money out of this. And it is something that people can sell. Um, Again, it brings us back to the rich versus the poor, because apparently only the rich are worth educating. So we can charge what we want, because the rich people in the country are the only people who are clever. Um, And I just think, again, that is not by accident. It's been designed that way so that people can continue to go to Oxford and Cambridge who have the right family members who can then go to lead our governments, to lead our police forces, to lead our high, you know, high offices in the country. It's just perpetual. It really is. And if they can make money out of it, why not? And I know a few people have sort of said that people aren't there's some students who aren't supportive of the strike and um, some people just want lecturers to be in doing their job. Um, As a trade unionist for an education sector myself, I can, I can make it very clear that strike action is always the last resort. You know, there's a lot happens before people go to strike action and it's not through greed and it's not through um, just wanting to cause a stir, it is because these people have had enough and they want what they're entitled to. So a strike action, it takes a lot to get there. They don't just wake up one day and go, do you know what? I'm not going to bother going to work today. It's a a long process to get there. So um, for those who aren't supportive of people taking strike, I would just ask people to bear in mind the fact that there have been long conversations that have happened before people have decided to start a picket. It is difficult. It's very difficult. But we are in a situation now where the majority of people in this country are not being paid what they're owed. And it's about time people stood up. So... For me, there should be strikes up and down the country until people get what they're owed. But it's the government who need to listen, not just to universities.
0: Love national collective strike. Let's all go on strike until they lower those in gas prices. Love it. We should. Um, thank you, guys. Thank you for inviting me to host tonight. You've all been amazing. Um, and the comments have been brilliant. Um, they've been coming in throughout the night. Sorry if I didn't read your comments out. Um, but, yeah, thank you. Yeah
1: um and we're going to be back in a couple of minutes for a chat. Samantha, are you are you going are you uh, are you going go to your covid in, bed?
3: Covid bed. Yep. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um so at the half time at 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 this point we're going to play um a song and we're going to come back for a few minutes afterwards to deal with the comments so that the the other panellists, which is you at home, can get your full attention that you deserve. And there have been some really, really good comments about racism and and things like that that we probably should address, so that would be really, really good um, to to be able to address those. But what we'll do now is we'll play this um, just to warn if John's watching, uh, we're going to do a little tribute to Barbara, and if you're not feeling like you can deal with that at the moment, then please don't, uh, please don't feel like you have to keep watching at this point. But uh, we did want to do something for us, so uh, we will now play No Pass Around, and we'll be back in five minutes. Welcome back, everyone. Um, lots of people saying how much they enjoyed that tribute. Um, so yeah, we uh, we we really, really already missed Barbara, but we definitely wanted to tell everyone how much that is the case. So um yeah, love to all our family and uh and hopefully we can do what we intended to do and bring a more socialist world um into reality. That will be the best tribute we could possibly give to Barbara so we'll keep on trying like we always do. Um thank you everyone for your comments. We've got um we, we've got we've had so so many of them are there any are there any that have really, really stood out to you tonight? Anyone on the panel at all? Are there any that we think, oh, we should really go back to that one? Um there was one from me very early on from Quantum Skyline when we were talking about um when we were talking about the first topic. Let's see where that was. I'll have a look at that. Were there any others that we want to have a look to as well?
2: Yeah, I was just saying I I spotted um early on, I wrote our name down so I'd remember it. Um Emily Morton's comment. Her and Quantum Skyline had had a, a little mm. to and fro about um, the cost of living crisis and and mm. how it was impacting them already. And that's before it hit its peak. And it just mm. it's really scary. It's th- really scary.
1: I think the comment here it is. Uh, Quantum Skyline said, "I was told I would get a, I would not get a pay rise this year, as it means passing costs to our customers. Some of our customers are oil and gas companies." Which I have big issues with, so it he doesn't want, like oh, yeah. he's not going to get paid more because they don't want to charge the oil and gas companies more. And uh, Emily was saying um saying that was disgraceful um, but also made the point that. People in the opposition made sure that they, the government stayed in government. You know? Well, I
2: think yeah. it was Emily who'd actually started that conversation. Early on in the conversation, she'd mentioned how she was dealing with it. Yeah, this, it's, um, it's on,
1: on, on universal credit and only heat up the smallest room in a home with blankets, a hot water bottle and using a medium electric setting. Try not to use hot water as I can't afford to keep up, topping up gas. Um, Can you imagine
2: but, Boris Johnson sitting in the house going, oh, no, turn the water off. We can't put the heating on today. Can you imagine? Yeah. They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. And like, we're all right. We have all right jobs. Like, we're not get we're not flush with cash. But we're all, but even now, I'm like, I do not want to get the next bill. So, how are people on universal credit who also, let's face it, universal credit is nowhere near enough money to even survive? And then they've cut it. <laughs> just
4: yeah. what are they doing? It's just had a full, it, at the same time as this has gone on the government essentially made universal credit worth 4% less and the state pension 4% less at the same time as they know that this extra burden's gone on. They, all they had to do was maintain it, as, you know, a 0% decrease. But they chose to to further almost, you know, damage people, hurt people at this point, humiliate people with the kind of lives that they're leading. It's, it's an absolute disgrace. We've, we've got people who are being told to work from home, doing decent jobs, who are sat on their laptop, doing, you know, jobs that you would think is a, a profession, right? And they're sat with gloves on and hot water bottles. And it's like the cottage industries of the 1800s. Mm. It's disgusting that we're back there. We kind of... Like, oh, it's sorry. like someone put up
0: commenting about um, their bathroom, and I was like, as you say, like, Paul does a decent job, we've got decent jobs, but I am obsessed with, like, not using, especially because I went from home now with not going over on the electricity and gas bill. So I just don't put heating on in the day as a choice, because I'm like, I don't want to be spending extra, and I'm not heating the one room that I'm in, so I've always got a little hot water bottle, but like I sound like my mother now when I come home and every on in the house I'm like it's like, <laughs> Get over, like these bills are gonna be sky high but it's like this ongoing anxiety about the bill and only when I see the bill I'm like oh my god because it's just being drummed into us but for me like the, the biggest kick in the teeth was this 200 pound energy bill loan that has to be paid back how how does that help anyone like how
1: I, that it's funny you should mention that because that was exactly um, the sort of thing I was going to mention. People who are working from home are actually been like having to heat the homes while they're there, and it's causing an extra cost. And you know, maybe maybe it's it's negated a little bit by travel, but it's been really interesting. That's something as trade unionists we had to have a look at to see like you know what costs were being incurred by people working from home. And with the energy prices going up so much and the electricity, like people having to use their own electricity to go online to meetings. And it's kind of like during COVID, it's been normalised. There's been some really, really weird things being normalised that I've noticed, which is one of them is turning up to work when you're ill with anything but COVID you know, so people are like rocking up and they're like vomiting everywhere. And you're like, you, you need to go home. This is awful. Don't do this. And, uh, but oh no, 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 it's not COVID. I, I don't care if it's not COVID go home. You're not well. Um, and, and then, uh, the other thing is just like using your own home and your own, your own facilities to do your job. And yeah. these are things that kind of need to be addressed as well.
0: And it's also like, you know, the requirements to have those facilities. So, you know if i took a job as a call center person or somewhere it's not really required that i have my own internet and computer and all those things but for most of the working jobs i do it's not like i don't get a computer like it's all my own stuff do you know what i mean there's just this like expectation that you have a house with all the things you need to set up your computer you mic, everything and have meetings
4: every house has an office now hmm. like some employers should be paying like 15% of the mortgage for people because 15% of their house is now a workplace. And that ne- that really needs to be looked into. It's not like we'll knock a couple of quid off your tax because you work from home. This is a real massive cultural shift that needs to be, you know, built into how we move forward. We can't just assume that we're all going to absorb the cost of creating at-home workspaces. Yeah, and while it'll be the done same, by the employer, they've got to pick it up.
1: And at the same time, you can m- mark my words that every single person who says they work from home but really they work from the golf course will be getting every single benefit and every single tax break that's available for having their home office. Like, you know, so it's the ordinary people who don't have these who basically the pays you earn people tax who, who just, you know who see the worst of this and then everywhere, every other trick in the book will be used by the people who have plenty of money. Um on Black Lives Matter and the police Cressida Dick earlier on uh, there's something that I would want to uh, ask you Chantel because like we didn't really go into the the racism very much in the in the chat about Cressida Dick. Um you were talking about in the the complaint of institutional racism that um, that Mr Javid was replying to. What was that about?
0: Oh, so two officers had raised a complaint, but they've basically not gone. So they were talking about, you know, the work culture, it's dismissed as banter, basically the just the usual WhatsApp groups and all the other ways that they're racist. Um, and they've gone anonymously, I believe, to the BBC, And so his criticism, he basically said um, he's disappointed in them because they didn't think that they could go to the force and they've gone to the press. Like me sat here as someone who went to the force and didn't go to the press, Mm. like 100% understands why those officers did not go to the force. A, you're completely ostracised by the force, and B, they don't do anything about it, and then they sweep it under the carpet. But there's been an even bigger one come out, which is a historical one from an officer who's just retired of the force. And he's released pictures of when, I think, ten or so years ago, when other officers painted the face white and said, now you look like us, you'll fit in properly. And just these really horrific accounts of racism and, you know, homophobia. I think he was the first officer to come out in, in the police force. So we just had this really horrific experience. Um, but I feel like it's interesting because, the, you know, racism's been a massive conversation in the Met. You know, Viva Henry, Nicole Smallman, the WhatsApp group, just loads and loads of instances of racism. But I don't think racism alone would have ever got anywhere near a resignation from Cressida Diff because it was just like, oh, it's racism, we'll just deny it, we'll just say we're not institutionally racist. It's only when what happened to Sarah Everard happened that people were like, OK, something has to change. And that, again, speaks to, you know, this, the deserving victims, although what happened to Sarah was terrible and absolutely awful. Again, we had two sisters who's had something awful and terrible happen who were Black, so it's only when it sort of comes into the white middle class that people are like, something has to change. It's a bit like what Laura said earlier of only certain voices matter in certain conversations and because this was, you know, this is the white middle class England who are now being impacted by the police's corruption. Forget all the stuff happening to Black officers, Black victims, everyone, Stephen Lawrence's family upwards it's only when it starts to bleed into other areas of society that people go okay there's something wrong with the police but black people black officers black everyone have been saying this forever (laughs) we've been saying the mess are institutionally racist and we target our communities and like disproportionately but like yeah it's only now that it's really coming to the fore
2: i think it's a it's a damning indictment of the racism actually because It's very intersectional as well because you had Sarah Everard, clear misogyny, clear misogyny. Then they covered it up and it was like, okay, we're fine with misogyny. And then, and only then after that, when a white woman was killed, did we find out really the details of Bieber Henry and and, and Nicole Smallman because I didn't, I'd kind of heard about it, Mm. but I didn't. And that was absolutely shocking. It was absolutely disgusting. And it goes to show, like, uh, maybe if they were two blokes, it wouldn't have been, wouldn't even been on the radar, because I do think there is this intersectionality here. It is misogyny, and it is homophobia, and it is racism, and it's all these things that seem to just come together, and, and there seems to be, a, like, a hierarchy of them. Like, we don't care that a, a woman's killed. Oh, we care even less if black women are killed. And it's, it's just... It really is an archaic point of view and opinions that I honestly would have thought by now we'd be long without because there's no justification for it in this day and age. There's no justification for it. You can say, oh, I was brought up like that. No one should be being brought up racist or homophobic or misogynistic. There's no justification. And I, it just boils my piss that there seems to be all these arguments are interlinked, but they all have their own strength. In that they're all important and none of them should be a thing. And we see them all in these positions of power. I realize I've had a right go at power tonight, but <laughs> just sure. honestly, I do think it's it's all link. It really is.
1: Don't worry, power will be all right.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, right? I'd say what I want because they'll just go uh, whatever. It'll cool. <laughs> We've got the money.
1: <laughs> it'll cool, yeah. Power go and look, yeah. <laughs> my, my honor. um so uh, we've got a question in from chris hood um who uh, often brings up things about like durham county council specifically but what we've got here is we've got we've always had a labor council in D- county durham until the last one and there was a lot of um there was a lot of suggestions that um Basically, a lot of people campaigned on not raising council tax, and there were some suggestions that they were going to raise council tax anyway. But they've, um he said thoughts on the joint administration's proposal for a zero percent core council tax rise in County Durham. Um, yeah, like that's that's good. That that's that's fulfilling a promise, I guess. Um, I don't know what you mean by court, to be honest. I don't know if there's anything anywhere else going on, but generally, yes. I think at this time, keeping council tax low is a really, really good idea. Um, I hope it doesn't lead to cuts in services. Um, Basically, I would scrap council tax altogether and do something much more fair, and I would love to see central government um, giving councils, and and particularly parish councils, actually, some more money and, and more power because we've had to raise our our parish council precept uh, for the first time in my entire... I've been a councillor for five years and it's the first time we've ever had to do it. And simply because um, everything is... Basically, we couldn't afford to continue doing what we were doing if we didn't. So, yeah, it's good to keep it low. Um, Stuart, did you want to comment on that one? Yeah,
4: my understanding of this isn't that the, the council tax isn't been increased it's a zero percent increase it's actually a three percent increase but that uh, because of the inflation means that the amount of uh, like revenue income that the council receives is identical year on year they've not got any more money they've not got any less money but in reality they did have to increase the tax to maintain that amount of money to match the inflation to balance it out so in reality there is a uh, an increase and like like you say, with the parish councils and most councils, they're trying to to minimise that while out, without suffering any further losses because austerity has done so much damage, certainly to, to big authority councils like Durham County Council. Savage, savage cuts came from the, the Conservative and Lib Dem-led uh, uh, austerity machine, let's call it, because that's what it was. That's basically the only policies that they had at the time, other than five pence uh, shopping bags. Yeah, and uh, I think it's right <laughs> that we we don't pass it on, but it's also not right if we don't call it out for what it is. We're only in this position because of you know austerity politics.
1: All right, okay. Uh, it's a, it it's Chris has also mentioned it's a three percent adult social care precept tax rise to pay for care workers in a decent wage. Ensuring we have sufficient care staff—that's got nothing to do with the core tax amount. So I'm guessing—is—is that a three percent rise overall? And then, but that's going to be the social care one that the government have kind of forced on people. I think that that sounds right. If I'm wrong, please do tell me, Chris. Um, But yeah, that was quite a specific question. What did like just to expand on it a little bit? What did um, both Laura and Chantelle think of? i think it's steve reed the new number 10 guy who came in as part of boris's reshuffle where he's going oh yeah well you know we'll get rid of corruption at number 10 and he came in and said yes my top priority is to shrink the state basically meaning you know he thinks the reason that boris johnson had so many parties at number 10 was because our bins get collected too much what do you reckon
2: Well, they do. My street is far too clean. I think we should push that to once a month. (laughs) And then, you know, give those poor folks some money, for God's sake. No, I just, it is just another one of those people who come in all shiny and new and promising the world. And then, but like it lasted a day before he said something absolutely ludicrous to show us that none of them have any idea of what it's like to live in the real world. They don't. They live in this. Uh, When we went to London that time, Paul, we were walking down past Westminster. I was like, oh, it's really nice here. It's really lovely. And you can see what the politicians say. That's that's their reality. It's gorgeous. Big white buildings, really old, beautiful architecture. You walk down the road a bit. And you're like, oh, right, yeah, this is the real world. This is what I recognise. And they would never need to see that. So, of course, they haven't got a clue. None of them do. This is why I will continually advocate for more working-class people in Parliament. Um, I recognise that Parliament is a flawed system. It is not perfect, but it's what we've got at the minute. And there's too many people who all went to the same school. <laughs> they, they literally all went to the same school who all rule all of us, it's not okay. We need more working class people. So if you do have selections coming up in your area, pick someone who's from your area who knows what they're talking about, please.
0: Definitely, definitely. It's interesting you mentioned the bins though, because um, we've on top of obviously the proposed three percent increase in um, council tax, one of our increases is a four in Liverpool a 40 pounds a year charge for your green bin, which is like your garden waste to be emptied, and it's like sort of charging you for for trying to save the environment, um, but that response is just the classic, you know, neoliberal and response of, Oh, we're going to cut back the welfare state, but we're going to increase state surveillance and we're going to increase, you know, the kind of paternalistic state who's watching you all the time and is. Kinds of increasing laws, building super prisons. So it doesn't mean they're going to roll back any part. They're going to roll back the public services we need, but the state reach and the state spying and the state, all of those negative things they do through the 20,000 police officer recruitment and all of those cameras that we have, you know, with the second most surveilled state in the world, that's going to increase. So it doesn't mean that they're going to be any less visible and kind of coming down on the working class as hard as they are. It just means that they're going to continue to
1: help us less and less, which is just really disheartening. Absolutely. Um, I've got the name wrong. It wasn't Steve it's was Steve Barkley. Um, and Stephen Gillen said Stephen Barkley is hopefully the last person who Johnson can go to a very right wing child of Thatcher. And I, I can feel the venom coming from that one. He's He's not saying that because someone who, has any fondness for Thatcher at all um, also we had um, well, I'm going to do a few comments now as well, we've had um, Neil Terry saying that uh, that Julie wins the comments tonight and what he means by that is, uh Lizzie Fletcher said, um, when we're talking about like uh, about not picking up the bins, she said, Yeah, the kids love playing in abandoned fridges. Let's bring that back. And Julie Sturk says, We can't. Boris likes to hide in them. So uh, <laughs> Good work nice. comments again. Um, so and uh, I, I I think it's I think it's Icho um, has been very active in the comments tonight. There's been all sorts of breakups and reconciliations and stuff like that. You are very, very welcome here. You seem to be promoting um, some a, a union, um, a group of trade unionists who want to really stand in solidarity with one another. Um, specifically, like the, you, you did mention earlier on, the fact that um, some university staff don't seem to realise, don't seem to link up the problem with having outsourced cleaners. In there, who are getting really low paid? A lot of the time, that's a way to get people below minimum wage as well, um, because they'll they'll outsource it, and then someone will be willing to break the minimum wage laws in order to you know get a, a cheaper contract for themselves and skim some money off the top. Because I often think, if you can, if you can get a cleaning company to do something for less money than it takes for you to pay the same amount of cleaning staff minimum wage you know there are corners being cut there is no there is no cut to be made there so i often think that yeah really really good point so um thank you for bringing that one up and uh yeah and if you look after security you can uh you can shut the place down that's an interesting thing if you look after the security staff get the security staff on side when you're doing your strikes that's always a a good tactic there so well done um, on behalf of Socialist Think Tank, what I'm going to do is I'm going to not make a closing comment myself. In a moment, I'm going to come to a closing comment from Stuart and then uh, from Chantel. And then Laura is going to do the what you do with Socialist Think Tank and things like that. And then we'll say goodbye. But, um, you know, how can you become a member and things like that? Well, I want to say on behalf of Socialist Think Tank Chantel you've been absolutely amazing a brilliant brilliant guest host we always see this show as being hosted by John D. Claire so what an amazing like to to step into his role so well has been absolutely incredible and let's see you in the show again at some point in the future as a panellist because uh, your opinions are absolutely class so um, Stuart do you want to do some closing comments then we'll go to Chantel
4: I'll keep it basic. Uh, If you want a decent life, you want decent opportunities, Tories out, get Boris out. Let's do something. Let's change the world. Great.
0: Um, I would say join a movement. We've got lots of national coalitions. Join an activist movement, get on the streets, and let's bring about some grassroots change.
1: Perfect. Laura, tell us about Socialist Think Tank and what you can do to to do what Chantel said um, with us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Socialist Think Tank, we are socialists. Come join us, be part of us, help us. Um, and we'll help each other you can find us on socialistthinktank.com you can become a member and because we're socialists you can join for free um we don't have amazing bells and whistles all we have for you is solidarity and love so come and join us if you do have that little bit extra money because we are socialists please do feel free to donate so that we can continue making this content for you we don't make very make very bare minimum like this much out of any merchandise, but you need to see our new merchandise. This is John's specific for Political Unmuted. Um, we have absolutely tons. All the badges that Rochelle, our designer, makes are on there. We've got the Iken Launch badge. We've got the Palestinian Solidarity badge. We've got the LGBTQI plus badge everything go have a look at it have a look at our t-shirts buy them spread the word of social think tank that's what this is all about it's not about making money it's about spreading solidarity and that's what we want to do so please do join us Um, as always in the comments on every show you are always the fifth or sixth panellist depending on which show we're on and we're really grateful for you so do join us become part of us Um, and you can be on the show too you know you don't just have to be in the comments we welcome people to be in our show and we are trying to expand as well so we have like social think tank west Midlands, social think tank southeast social think Tank london we want to grow so please do join us and and we'll force you to start your own channel
1: <laughs> thank you thank you so much couldn't say couldn't have said it better and thanks to rochelle for doing all the designs as well because uh she's amazing yeah. and she does such good work and she works incredibly hard and uh I will um I will now say goodbye to you all and uh and take care. We we'll
3: keep the red flag flagging here.